Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. And you can check out my Audible on Amazon. It's called African American Athletes Who Made History. And be on a lookout within the next few months. There'll be a Audible on Negro League. So I have been busy. Good. Uh, welcome back. Yo, uh, I'm Derek White. I'm author of Challenge of Blackness, History of Black World and, and Political Activism in the 1970s, as well as Blessed Sweat, and Tears, Jay Gate, the Florida a and the History of Black College Football. Uh, Lewis Moore, it's been a minute. It's been a long time. Shouldn't have left you. Mm. 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 <laughs> Without a dope yeah. beat to step oh, to. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Someone grew up in the night. It was 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, it's been, oh gosh, two months. Sorry. Like, first off, we just like to apologize. We just get busy. Um, and, and it's really hard to match our schedule sometimes, especially towards the end of the year. And then summer hits and then we're gone. And then what you listeners don't know right now is, is, is Derek is trying to make the PGA senior tour right now. So he literally golfs. Every single Derek Lee Elder <laughs> White literally <laughs> golfs every day. Trying literally to my, trying to get my Char- Charlie Sifford on. That's what I'm trying yeah. to do. Yeah, um, Charlie Sifford. First, I believe uh, first black golfer with his own clubs, 19 and 1950. So, yeah, if you ever get some Charlie Siffords, you keep those. If you ever at the antique right, store, so, so you said that's I true. To, actually, yeah. I need to go find some then. Um, right. Yeah, man, I've been I've been doing a lot of golfing. Not well though. Not not enough for any tour. Um, uh, but it's been, it's been, like you said, it's been hard. The summer's come into the semester is always crazy for us as academics. And then, uh, summer hits and then we just like take off and went to, took the family to Florida, went on vacation, back to camps, had family in town, you know, yada, yada, yada. But it's been two months. Uh, and now we're here. And so we're going to get back into it with a lot of stuff has happened in the last week that has, uh, spurred us back to the microphones to give you a summer edition of the black athlete podcast Lou, what you been up to besides that doing this audible man what's up? can you give us can you give the listeners a little bit more about this negro league audible because i know you just finished like uh, probably what three weeks ago or so four weeks yeah ago? so i spent the year writing it um i'd rather be working on my the black quarterback book but this opportunity came up uh it's money i, I started <laughs> You know, the difference between this and writing a book, it's money. So, like, I can't. Man, I got three kids, so I'm going to take the money all the time. That's one thing you know about me. Um, but it's it's 12 lectures. They're about uh, 4,000 words each. So when you record 4,000 words, it's, it's about it's about 30 minutes um, each. And then it's also, I would say, visual, too. So I was there recording three weeks ago in, in studio. So not only my voice. So the, the African-American athletes who made history, that's just voice. I'm just sitting there reading it. I don't know if I read really well, um, but this one, it's a lot better. I, they'll have images just scrolling behind me, B-roll, all, all that kind of stuff. And so it says Negro Leagues, but I started in the 1850s and just worked our way up. So I don't even think until lecture four or five where we get like, into the Negro, um, you know, Negro National Leagues from 1920. And then so got a lecture on the Eastern Colored Leagues. I got a lecture on the East-West All-Star Game. I got a lecture on like the other leagues. I got on the closing. So I did a lot, like a lot, a lot. And the most interesting thing I found, and this is no knock on anybody, is that there's just a lot of stuff out there. And sometimes it's not well put together. Sometimes it's just not well um how do I say fact checked and stuff. And so the hardest part was just trying to figure out like what fits, what doesn't fit. And then, um, you know, also doing my own primary research, but I, I had fun. I learned a lot, forgot a lot. Um, it's, it's, it's really hard when you're, it's really intense, right? A year to write 40,000, well, almost 50,000 words, right. In less than a year. So I started in September, finished in March. Um, so it's a lot. And I was teaching. So, um, but it was, you know, went there for four days recorded it and so that's what i've been doing um but it's done now and so i'm ready to move like i've been saying this i know listeners about the black quarterback book and i know another one's coming you don't have to tell me it's fine there's a like i tell people there's a hundred muhammad ali books there's a hundred jackie robinson books it's okay if there's going to be like three black quarterback books we'll be okay um so i've been researching for that one for like two years again if you know Derek, he's called he calls me a hoarder 
Um, and I'm not done yet. I got, like there's a couple of newspapers I got to look at. Um, but I've been just spending the last few few weeks, month, just going over those notes again and just trying to like sketch out like what, how I want to write it, where, um, what I actually want to say. And that's, you know, that's what's, it's been the fun part, right? Um, it's tedious, but it's fun. So that's, that's what I've been doing. Other than that, just trying to stay in shape, drink beer. So I got to work out. Um, so there we go. What about yourself? Oh, uh, what have I been doing? I haven't been doing much. Golfing. Been, there we go. I've been, I've been doing a lot of golfing. Actually, I actually thought um, it's been an interesting thing. There was an article in the Tallahassee Democrat like a few weeks ago uh, about the Jake Gaither golf course. And I think uh, my golfing, uh, my recent foray into golf and my longstanding work on Jake Gaither. Uh, I'm supposed to go down to Tallahassee, I hope, this year to give a talk. Um, I hope my, my good friend Darius, I'm putting him on his blast, my, my good friend and colleague Darius Young, who works at FAMU, uh, uh, is supposed to invite me down. Ooh, uh, yeah. To, I think he's from Detroit, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Darius is going to um, – uh, I'm going to try to get down there either in the spring or fall. But one of the things I want to do is uh, play golf at the Jake Gaither Golf Course because I think that's a – but at this point, I think it's like one of two uh, – Black, still in existence, kind of black, formerly segregated black golf courses, public golf courses in the South, right? Oh, wow. And so it's got this really interesting history. uh, And I actually thought I want to research about how it got, you know, created in the first place. Um, And given that FAMU for a long time had a black golf team uh, long before, you know, even in the 1960s, I think it's an interesting kind of way of thinking about, you know, this longer history of black golf. Uh, Lane Demas has a, has a really excellent book. Who uh, I will I will say beat out. We will win the day. No, beat out. I fight for a living. No, we win the, the day. Beat out Nothing beats. We, let me say we will win the day. So that was like 2017 Nash, but it wouldn't have been that 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 publishing company, the original one, not Kentucky. Um, you know, I don't think they put it in for any awards. <laughs> and when it came to Kentucky, I was like, look, it's already been out. Let's, I just want to, I just want it out. I don't yeah. really care about the awards, but yeah, his oh, book did yeah. beat me out. I don't, I don't think it should have, you know, I fight for living is really good, uh, but I'm good, man. It gets, you know, my book goes in people's classrooms and, and people use it. So, you know, but was thing what did Demas talk about Tallahassee or no? No, I don't think he talks about Tallahassee, but it is a really thorough book about um, black golf. I was talking to a friend of mine, a colleague of mine here at the University of Kentucky, Frank X. Walker, who's a world-renowned poet um, and um, and scholar. And he was he's a big golfer, too, is who I play golf with. And he was talking about doing some really interesting work, kind of creative work about black caddies and thinking about thinking through kind of you know, the black caddies in Augusta and the black caddies at these kind of traditional white golf courses about, about how they lived and their, like the way they learned the game play. But also he, you know, he's, he's interested in the kind of lived experience. So also thinking a little bit about, you know, how they talked, how they played, how they lived, right. how, how they lived the game of golf in this kind of segregated market. Um, so he's been doing some of that. So we've been chatting that up. So that's, that's something I actually think when I, when I go down to give a talk in, in Tallahassee, hopefully in this 22, 23 academic year, I'm going to look into doing some of that and doing some research because um, I find it to be interesting. They they did a really good special on Tallahassee Democrat, um, but they didn't really, you know, I think they didn't really do, you know, understand the politics about how a golf course gets, you know, like who who advocates for the creation of a golf course and then who approves it, all that stuff. That stuff I find always interesting. That's kind of what I talk about in, in, in all my books um, is really like kind of that background logistics because I'm also interested in like, how stuff gets done. Um, yeah, if- no, no, I would say that's super right. Cause you're talking, they like said there's probably very few segregated municipality golf courses, like, cause you're talking space and money and you're also talking people would have to actually want it. So there's probably a really good story behind the, the, the black leaders in Tallahassee who, who fought for a, a nine hole or 18 hole, municipal golf course right and and what it meant and the fact that it's still there and the fact that it's still getting public dollars um but but you know though i don't want to we don't get political here but the way the supreme court is going like <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's gonna there's gonna be a lot more of those uh <laughs> like i'm pretty that's where we're going so like you you know at the gaither's ready the gaither is ready for jim crow coming back in in the 2020s um but but to me real quick before we move on like the whole caddy stuff is like I always say, like 
those unlikely stories in, in sport history, right? It's it's Althea, the Williams sisters, just because of the way sport is. But anytime caddies made it to the big time, right? Because the game wasn't designed for them to be good, even even when they're caddies, right? They had to play at when the golfers were playing and, and mm-hmm. play with their, I'm sure the clubs weren't good. So when you see people like, a, a, I believe like a Pete Brown, who was like, comes from Mississippi, right? In the yeah. 1960s. It's like, where would these guys even play, right? And how? Mm-hmm. And, and so to me, all those guys, just that fascinating story, um, all those black golfers from that time, whether it's Ted Rose, Charlie Sifford, Pete Brown, um, even someone you get into Lee Elder, or what's my man's name in, in the 80s? I don't know his background, but was it Calvin Pete? Yeah. Like that, like to me, you read those stories, like there's not enough conversation, like on a Calvin Pete. Like, you, like when you go – to like the defender as I was going through, as I get every sports page, just because I don't want to miss anything. That's the difference between me and so-and-so, right? In a quarterback book, I go through the defender every sports page because I want to know everything on Vince Evans. So there. But, like you know, Calvin Pete keeps coming up. Like, this dude mm-hmm. was really good. And and for how great he was or good he was, we don't even we don't even say his name anymore, right? Yeah. Um, And so to me, that's that. All that stuff is just tremendous. Like you said, how things get done and, and why and how that would happen uh, for black folks to be able to build a municipality golf course seems like unheard of, right? Private yeah. clubs make sense. Uh, someone's putting together the money, they're buying land, um, but a municipality golf course makes like it's hard to even think about. Yeah. So I think, yeah, Lane talks about a one in Atlanta. Um, but Tallahassee is not the same size as Atlanta, right? But it has a very similar kind of population with, you know, black educated HBCU elites. So I think it's a really kind of interesting story. The other piece is, uh, and I talked to my friend and colleague, and this is not my wheelhouse. So if we got a listener who wants to take this on, I would love to, this is, I would love to talk to them about working through this. But I can imagine an amazing story, like fictional story uh, about- Back Lee, Oh, sorry. No, no, no. About <laughs> Lee Elder's first- uh, uh, playing the Masters in 1975, when uh, it wasn't until recently, like the late 80s, early 90s, that the Masters allowed you allow golfers to use their own caddies. So in 1975, if you made the Masters, you had to use one of the caddies from at, that worked right. at the at the at the resort. I mean, at the clubhouse at the club, and many of those were black. So I wonder, like, you could imagine a story where, like, do these black caddies, like do they give like just subtle wrong information to try to help Lee Elder right. out? Right. Uh, or, you know, or Lee Elder is always, there is a st- true story about they're worried about black caddies actually doing too much for them, like kicking the ball forward <laughs> out of a rough, you know, like those are some interest to me. That's the yeah. interesting part. Like, you know, that dicey line between, because golf is such a, a game of like honesty and integrity. Like, you know, you post. Oh, I can't stand that. Yeah, I mean, oh, I don't. Sorry, we 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 play. Uh, uh, we do not play Masters level. We don't. Play yeah, people. I can't. I I it's played hard. the other day. Yeah, for forty five bucks. I'm Mulligan. What do you mean Mulligan? I'm shooting this again. I'm, I'm shooting <laughs> this doing, again. Doing it until I get it right. <laughs> I'm doing this. I just pay. I just pay forty five. I've been out here for four hours. I'm shooting this again. So, <laughs> I don't care about oh. the rules. Like I'm stepping <laughs> on this green. Like yeah, I yeah I drove my cart here. Let's go. <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's real. That's real. Yeah. Um, so let's move before we move on. Let me just say, listeners. Actually, Derek said if you have, don't nobody take that idea because I actually think that's a great book. Like I think you could, you could, you could spend months pitch getting it right and pitching that as Lee Elder's first Masters as as a book as a as a trade book and and do very. I bet I guarantee it do very well. It would do very, very well. No, it's so, a great idea. I don't know if it's my steal it, listeners. If you steal it, we know where you got it from. Yeah, so, we, we put it. Yeah, I mean. We'll, it. we'll come at you. We'll give bad we talk, reviews. We talk. We, what, we throw shade on Twitter. Is that what we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. New York's um, number time, New York Times bestseller. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let, let, let's talk a little. Since we talk about, like, uh, you know, record breakers and pioneers, let's talk a little bit about the passing of Marlon Briscoe. You wrote an article for First and Pin this week. Um, and so for our listeners, you, you talked about this black quarterback book that you've been researching for two years, but you've talked about on and off for at least the last eight since when, when the day came out and research. I'm just being honest. Right. Yeah, uh, let's yeah. talk about let's talk a little bit about, you know, give for our listeners 
you know, what's the importance uh, and, and historical significance of, of the legacy of Marlon Briscoe? Who was he? Uh, give a little bit of background for folks who, who may not have seen the article. Yeah, or just heard about him. So Briscoe is, so so if you obviously listen to us, you know something about the black athlete. But but Briscoe is the first black quarterback to start in, in, in modern professional football. And that's a big deal because it was unheard of at the time. They didn't, you know, the, the powers that be in professional football didn't think black quarterbacks could lead a team um, for various reasons. Didn't think they had the intelligence to learn the plays. Didn't think they had the leadership skills and we mean leadership skills. And Briscoe was clear about this. Like there's Southerners out there, right? And is a Southern white guy going to take, listen to a black guy, right? And that, mm-hmm. that was openly discussed about. They didn't, you know, they always were tagged as runners and athletes. And certainly Briscoe was a four or five guy. Um, Briscoe was actually small, but all these things lends itself to black black guys not being able to play. So a great player like a Sandy Stevens who who led Minnesota to the Rose Bowl, what, 1960, 61. Mm-hmm. You know, he got drafted early in, in the draft and they was like, nah, you're going to be DB, right? <laughs> um, later on, guys like Tony Dungy, who, you know, was really, you know, really good. Nah, you, you got to be DB, right? And that was the history and, and Briscoe knew this. Every black quarterback knew this. And so when Briscoe comes into the league, he's drafted 14th round, 1968. There's three black quarterbacks drafted that year. The first one, the first time ever a black quarterback's drafted in the first round, Eldridge Dickey, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's and, Prayer. And, and and I true story, I bought there's a there's a website that sells an Eldridge Dickey DVD from like his cousin or something. I don't know, a family member, and I and I bought it. And I was like, cool, PayPal got reimbursed. I was like, dude, this might never come to me. <laughs> Like, did it come? Did, no, yeah, it came the other day. Like two months later, I'm super pumped. Now I gotta make sure I have a DVD to watch it. I think my Xbox, I think my Xbox has it. But D- Dicky's first round, and Dicky is supposed to be the guy. He's Tennessee State. He has an arm. He could probably throw it about seventy yards in the air. My guess he's about four or five forty. Can I can I say this? He could also throw it uh, fifty yards in the air with the left-handed that right. was the other he <laughs> is from houston a tremendous athlete could have gone to houston just grazed wound up at, at tennessee state called the lord's prayer and that's how his coach saw him went to tennessee state one of the best programs everyone thought he's next raiders drafted in the first round you're gonna be a flanker other guy jimmy ray plays for michigan state uh leader one of the leaders in the big 10 you're gonna be a db now ray winds up double hurt in his career not enough said by this but he's one of the top OCs in the 1980s, never gets a shot at head coach, right? Mm. So he's one of those black guys who, who by the 1980s, this guy's going to be first and never, never gets a shot. And then there's Marlon Briscoe out of the University of Omaha, Nebraska, NAIA, 5 foot 10, 170 pounds, 4, 5, 40. So not your typical guy, right? Um, when it comes to the size, quarterbacks that like him big because you got to be able to see the off, off his line. They just see he, him as a rollout passer. But as I put in the article, and this is the type of research I could bring, uh, the scouting report, he's got the best arm. The New Orleans Saints, who's they're coming into their second year, their, their scout is like, he's got the best arm I've ever seen. It's a live arm. It's a type of arm. I talk about this player, and you can look it up on YouTube. Um, when you're playing like the Bills, and he's roll, he rolls left, and he throws right on a dime, 55 yards to Floyd Litter, streaking down the sideline on the opposite side. And what's so amazing about this, and I, I kind of put it in the article, is that's what the the scout was talking about. Like, there's nobody who could do that, right? And at the same time, he's fast and and. They want him to be a DB, but Briscoe has it in his contract. And a lot of black quarterbacks at that time started to do that, that you got to give me at least a shot, right? At, at mm-hmm. quarterback. And he said, and he said, talks about it in his autobiography, which I, which I have, and it's autographed. That's, that's how the way it came on Amazon. So I feel sorry for that person who gave that up, um, that he would go and just chuck it as far as he could when it was when it was his chance because he just wanted to show he wanted not only the the team to see but the fans to see because when you had the fans on your side that's a different animal right because they put pressure on that and then he comes into I'm, I'm trying to make this as short as possible but he comes into spring not spring training uh mini camp right and he's a DB start of season he's a DB and then all of a sudden they're starting DB our quarterback's awful and he's hurt. The other ones are awful. 
and coach Lou Saban, who's had black quarterbacks before, and gets rid of them, right? So Lou Saban's not a branch Ricky in this, even though people try to paint him as and, and Lou Saban pr- seems pretty, I don't want to say racist, but like he's <laughs> he has black quarterbacks, but he gets rid of them. Like he did James Harris wrong too. Um mm-hmm. Later on in Buffalo, and and no one makes that connection. But say, so, hey man, you gotta play quarterback, and and he's the runner up for rookie of the year. I believe he has fourteen. I want to say fourteen touchdowns. He leads his team in rushing. He's like you know he's got a four touchdown game. He's got a three hundred yard game. His nickname is the magician. He's lighting up the league as a rookie, and then it's done. He he. He they don't invite him back. In fact, they cut him the next year. It's like, wait a minute, this dude was runner up rookie of the year, right? Hey, wait, can we imagine like you cutting your exciting runner up? It's like cutting Kyler Murray. It's like cutting. So imagine Kyler. The best way to describe him, he's probably Kyler Murray, right? He's that size. He's that speed. He's that quick for that time. He's Kyler Murray's like speed, right? Like four or five. In in the nineteen sixties, when people not Michael, not, not Michael Vick, no, well, well, Mike Vick's like well a four one, right? So yeah. maybe he is Michael Vick at that time, right? In that time where where the league is still intentionally still. segregated, yeah, right. I'm not, and I'm not saying anything about black athletes or fast or white Teams look a lot different now, right? But but you know when when guys aren't speed training for the forty, speed, speed, speed was not speed was not pri- uh, speed was a variable, but it was not right. prioritized. It's not priority priority on especially on defense, right? And 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 so four five is fast for a quarterback, really. And he's and he's he's not just fast, but he's quick fast, right? He's really good at basketball too. He plays and, and he starts at basketball. Um, and you have that. You're right. You have that. You don't cut Kyler Murray after the second second year, um, and and that's that's what happened. And then he wound up becoming a, a receiver. So it goes to Buffalo. Then he's on those dolphins teams that went back to back championship. But the key thing, and, and we'll, I'll say this and I'll stop the, to me. He understands the moment in real time and how important it is. And there's several quotes throughout the year where he says, even, even before the draft, like he understands what this means that maybe if I make it, the guy who comes after me won't get switched, right? Mm-hmm. Like they just see it. And 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 I, I write this in that that article. That's a lot of pressure, right? Because 68, 68, 68, it's MLK, it's RFK, it's Chicago Democrat um, Convention. It's the Summer Olympics with John Carlos and Tommy Smith. It's on top of all that, you have those riots. And, and I mentioned, I think in the article in Denver, there's, a pretty nasty integration discussion about schools. Uh, and, and here's this black quarterback he has to deal with this and all of black America is rooting for you, right? Because mm-hmm. they've been waiting for you and you perform Now you have your ups and downs and let's, let's be real. He's, he's limited. Like the first game he plays, I think they only give him six plays, right? And, and he's not allowed to make these changes, do anything else. He's a rollout well, passer now, so you want to drop back we, passer. Yeah. Can I can I say this though? Can I say this is also important? Like for people, this is just like super inside baseball, but this is a sports podcast. Like one of the things in the 1960s when they talked about leadership is that there was no real thing as an offensive coordinator per se, right? Like the quarterbacks were right. expected to call the plays, right? And so there was a general, like, they would send in plays, uh, but it was not necessarily like now where we see so much communication between the sideline and the quarterback. It was much more – I mean, this is one of the reasons. And you talk about the the pressure that, that Marlon Briscoe had and Eldridge Dickey and Joe Gillum at Pittsburgh, right? They all mm. had – they were all – they all had tr- struggles Drug with drugs, drugs, right? right? Yeah. And part of it was dealing with that pressure. Um, but Joe Gillum in Pittsburgh, one of the things that one of the reasons he got an opportunity was that Terry Bradshaw really struggled. Who was, you know, dumb, so, right? They say he was dumb, right? And right, they don't right, want to knock Terry did, Bradshaw. Yeah, yeah, but they were but, like, yeah. you know, what was the what was the joke that they couldn't spell cat if you gave him the C and the T, right? Like, it was yeah, like, so, it, yeah, or C and the A or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you know, so part of that, part of the challenge, and one of the reasons Joe Gillum got the opportunity was because because Terry Bradshaw struggled with Colin plays, right? The other part was that that Eldridge Dickey, one of the reasons they got drafted is that Kenny Stabler, who had got drafted the year before, I believe, um, it was like just took off, 
like left the team and went back to Alabama to do something like like he's a baseball guy too I think too so that yeah and he got he hurt just, and, but yeah yeah he was hurt but he just disappeared for a little while right and so that's why Eldridge Dickey thought he was going to get a shot right and so that pressure you pointed out about the drugs man and so I think it's also important that like you said when he comes in with six plays he wasn't playing quarterback A and then B the the quarterback had a tremendous amount of responsibility, even though they did not throw the football nearly right. as much as they did in, in the modern game. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I think Marlon Briscoe's passing. I think the NFL has done. I will say this: the NFL has done a decent job of uh, of constantly reminding folks in the last. So I started my book on four A and M over a decade ago. At least in the last 10 years, I've seen the NFL talk a lot more about these kind of HBCU pioneers, these racial pioneers and quarterback. These are the kinds of things that I think that they've done. And Marlon Briscoe has been at at the forefront of that conversation. Um, And it'll be interesting to see if they do anything this season to honor Marlon Briscoe as we move in to really kind of talk about it. Especially with the Denver Broncos having a black quarterback, Russell Wilson. But but I, I'll say this. Can I just say this? Looks a lot plays like, a lot like Russell. <laughs> right. Yeah, plays a lot like just five, short, athletic, rollout, everything, right? And, mm-hmm. and But I think, too, there's two things about the NFL celebrated. NFL does a really good job about celebrating his past. Part, part, of the, part of it, though, is that they pat themselves on the back, right? And it's like – you want to pat yourself on the back about Martin Briscoe being a barrier breaker without saying, well, why he had to be a barrier breaker, right? Like that's because your league kept a lot of talented players out and made them switch. The the other part about it, it's I write about it. It's hard. Like we often don't talk about it. And, and I said in that quote, that's that's why, you know, King said Jackie Robinson was a sit-in there before the sit-ins, the Freedom Riders before the Freedom Rise. That type of stuff, the the racist vitriol that you get, the pressure that you're under. It's really hard, and I don't think people really truly understand what it's like being that guy. Whether you're Doug Williams trying to win the Super Bowl in, in 1988, or you're Marlon Briscoe 20 years later, uh, 20 years before, knowing that you're the first guy and you're Jackie Robinson in that moment, it's really, really hard. And like you said, those demons got to him, and they got to all, out of all the guys that that played full time. I will say full time. Joe Gillum got the shaft. In, in my book, we'll talk about, don't worry, in my book, ladies and gentlemen, 74, we're going to have something on 74, we're going to have something on 73, I am prepared, I am watching Monday, old school Monday Night Football on YouTube, I am watching it all. Is that, um, that one Joe Gill threw it out and he threw an interception on his first two passes? Uh, first way, Miami Dolphins, 1973, Monday Night Football, he, he and how it goes off. Yeah, he, he was late and outside. I, I've seen that. Yeah, Doug Williams throws a pick his second pass too. Um, but, but anyway, but you know, uh, Gilliam gets a shot because there's a strike, right? And, and and if you look at it, and and I can say this now because someone's books coming out in a month, is there's no way they can make these changes. It's like a lot of these black quarterbacks, um, strike breakers. So J- James Harris, strike breaker in '74, trying to get some early times. Joe Gilliam, mm-hmm. strike breaker in '74. Vince Evans, strike breaker in 87 and gets on. Uh, Willie Totten doesn't get a shot. Strike breaker plays for the Buffalo Bills. Reggie Collar, strike breaker plays for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah. These guys, had, they got to cross the line to, 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 to make things happen just 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 to get a shot. And, and Gillum took a lot of crap up front, but he's like, fuck that. I want to get a shot. And he got a shot. Right. And he looked better. And everyone knew he was better. There, there wasn't anybody in Pittsburgh in 1974 that didn't think Joe Gillum was better and Terry Bradshaw, but it was like, as they said, it was just too much, too much racism and pressure uh, from the Pittsburgh fans. I won't give away the story what I talk about when I Pittsburgh seventy four, but there's a lot of outside stuff going on in Pittsburgh, right? Um, that I think influences how they see the black quarterback, and I think it's different than how they see their Pirates, right? Because three years before their Pirates started nine black players, um, but all of a sudden it's controversy when you start a black quarterback. It's just. You know, it's just different. But but back to Briscoe, yeah. I think, like I said earlier, the idea that he knew what he was doing, that that this was for the next guy. And I think that's so selfless. Like he he, he played for, for the next guy, so he didn't get switched. And still, guys were getting switched or just not getting opportunities. You know what we should do, Lou? I'm putting this – this is real time. We didn't talk about this in the, in the pre-thing, so I'm just putting this out there this fall. Um, we should do a list – of some sort of 
uh, I don't know where we put this on the internet somewhere, but of all the guys who got switched, I think one of the things that gets lost in this discussion about switch is how good of, of athletes. I hate that word because they were so kind yeah. of coded, racially coded. But like some of these folks uh, are amazing. Like they get the switched. Hall of Fame, like, <laughs> like, Ken no. Riley, right? He's no, Ken Riley, Riley in another position. Right, yeah. right. Ken Riley should be in the Hall of Fame. He has 65 interceptions. Right. <laughs> like, That's crazy. Like, like 65 interceptions, plays like right. 17 years in the NFL as a DB and as a thing. You know what I mean? Like that, there's a list, there's a whole list. I mean, like when I was writing the book about fam, like the one thing that you constantly see is that all these black college quarterbacks are getting switched into other positions, right? Like this is part of the, this is part of Eddie Robinson's push for Shaq Harris and eventually Doug Williams. This is Joe Gill. Like there's this all Eldridge Dickey, right? All these guys right. who have been lighting it up, putting up ridiculous numbers when the big tens leading passer had like you know 1200 yards passing Eldridge Dickey was right. going for 3000 yards like, right, like right, right. <laughs> well even i was reading um warren moon's autobiography again because that's what i do i don't know it's more like a teenage but it's fine like you look at his washington numbers like 1300 yards of my way to that's like that's why you didn't get drafted no, I'm just but like 1300 yards was common back there whereas like you know, Doug had like 35 touchdowns and, and was yes. just throwing it all over. But that's the, and that's another thing we talk about in one of our book, if we ever get it right, just the innovation that has to come from a lot of these programs, right? And so that's yeah. why you get, you get Doug or, or Harris or Dickey throwing all over, Gillum throwing all over. The other thing these guys talk about in real time, they're not lying, is they, they intentionally run slow. Um, so you can <laughs> um, pick them. So Gillum was like, I'm not, yeah, I'm running slow. Or or someone like Harris, they was like, you look at James Harris, they're talking about making him DB. The dude's 6'4", like 2, 3, like what are you thinking? <laughs> like he's only <laughs> can play, literally, maybe they could switch him to tight end because that's why he doesn't go to state because um, he was like, they wanted me to switch to tight end. I was like, I'm not, I'm playing quarterback, right? And then yeah. here's this guy who's, what's crazy about Harris is, is he goes, he's from Monroe. At one point, their team, I think they win. I want to say they win it all in the state, the black the black title in 62, going undefeated. And I think they lose to St. Augustine in like 63. He only loses like one game. They're like, they dominate. And and he mentions this in one of these articles that they barely even got a sniff in the local papers. I'm like, all right. But you think about newspaper.com, you can look this stuff up. And he's right. Like, here's this team that wins the black state title. And Monroe's a small town. They barely even they barely didn't get a sniff in, in yeah. these articles, right? But but I think what happens is what I've looked up when I you know look up Doug stuff in so Doug's from Zachary, that's Doug Williams. I'm saying his first lane like we're friends. Um <laughs> like the Baton Rouge play, they do a lot better. I think integration changes things where now all of a sudden these sports, especially like a major sports page like Baton Rouge, um, whatever, morning advocate, whatever it is, they do a lot better job of of talking about these schools because even though Doug's school is predominantly black, they still, they're still in it. Right. And they still like talking about it. Whereas some of the stuff is just hard to, hard to get. Um, but you know, like you, like we get back to Briscoe, it's just an amazing, sad story. It's an amazing story, but he gets his life back on track. It takes him a while, but that's the beauty of it. He does get his life back on track. And it seems like he's been giving, he does a lot of interviews and he was really gracious with his time. Um, and I think for the last what fifty plus years, he he understood that that his role was to be that guy. And it, it was crazy. They all are, they all are that guy. You know, Gilliam, Gillum, it's not Gilliam, Gillum, and Harris would call each other in nineteen seventy four, like during the season, because they knew even though Gillum got shafted, and they knew what they were going through, right? And it's like it's the story of the black quarterback. These guys, I'm sure the the ESPN guy will say this and will say it here. It's these guys put up numbers like Harris led the league in passing in 76 and he was gone. Like that's on that is unheard of. Like imagine leading the league in passing and you're gone and, and you never really get a legitimate. I mean, he goes to San Diego, so he's behind fouts and stuff, but you never get a legitimate shot and you're the yeah. league leader in passing. And that's what these guys had to go through. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, dude. I mean, I think it's 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 like you said. I mean, ridiculous and sad, and you know, it's hard to grapple with. And I think that one of the things when we talk to students, they feel like this is. I mean, granted, our students are born in like two thousand, so it was feel like it was oh, that hurts. Ago. Yeah, um, but like it wasn't that. I mean, like Marlon Briscoe just passed, Ken Riley just passed in twenty twenty, right? These are these are players 
who who played in the late '60s, who were who many of whom are still around, right? Like you know, to tell yeah. their story, and we I think that's part of what our job as historians in this podcast, but in our work as well, is trying to tell these these longer stories, um, and and really give them their you know hopefully give them their flowers while they're still here and, and honor them. And so I think right. well, I think the NFL. For all his flaws, like you said, not talking about why he, why we have to celebrate him, or why he only got one season, or why he was a wide, re- you know, he made the Pro Bowl as a wide receiver and for the Dolphins as the Dolphins, right? Like I think, think well, you know, I think he this never is, played. He never, he never played. He was a he D- never played quarterback. The they tried to make him DB, and it's like, okay, you want to play be receiver? All right. I mean, imagine <laughs> that sixty nine. That sixty nine Bills team had um, OJ his rookie year. Uh, James Harris. James Harris actually starts the first game, and that's it. But uh, OJ, James Harris, Marlon Briscoe, um, and so there's one practice where like they're throwing to each other. It's like, okay, this is interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah, like no, it's, they had it's these guys. It's, it's close history to us. Yeah, and then even when you get to the '80s, maybe we get to work on our next book. We got a couple books in our heads, ladies and gentlemen. But it sounds like. Derek White is writing the 1975 Lee Elder going to the Masters. Book no, now, I'm not. So I'm not. I'm not. Got, I'm still. I'm still doing should, our football man. book. I should, but I, I, know, I, I, I know. know. I don't. I don't. I, I feel like it's like. Fi- look, I'm gonna I finish, finish this. I'm gonna finish this, and then we'll get in this summer, and I'll, I'll be on something new next summer. So we're good. Yeah, I think. I think it's. Uh, you know, these are these are again fantastic stories, and and I think this is a great way of honoring the legacy and life and legacy of Marlon Briscoe. Um, let's can we change gears a little bit to the to the present? Yeah, let's because yeah, let's change gears. We've been we're like we're like thirty five minutes. I want to talk a little bit about like what's happened in the last week. Let's start with basketball. Can I just talk about yeah. that on Twitter? I just want to say this. This is two weeks ago. Oh gosh, weeks ago now, uh, a lot, uh, long time ago. My, my my colleague came out unequivocally. It was like Boston's winning this series. They're younger, more athletic, uh, and they proceeded to be. Uh, uh, <laughs> Definitely younger and definitely more athletic, uh, but they also uh, gave the ball away more than any other team in the NBA Finals in a long time, mm. and uh, they they lost four to two to the Gold State. So let me ask you a question. This is a history question. How do we? I mean, everybody else has been doing this. How do we think about this this Golden State run? Like, what does this fit yeah. historically? And what? Do, how do we think about Steph Curry just originally? Like, I think this is really our right. house, like a historical right. question. There's a lot let's of it like, where does he fit? Like, you know, top 15, yeah. top 10. I don't want to get into all that. I do think that there's a certain kind of um, – but I, I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say about it. Yeah, first of all, let me, let's me blame Boston on Derek White, not this Derek White, but the other Derek White. No, I'm just kidding. Right? So we've, we've <laughs> talked about like those guys. And, yeah, and, you know, the, the finals highlights your weakness. And, and I think, you know, Brown and Tatum, they're young and they got stuff to work on. But as far as this Warriors thing, when I, when I thought the Celtics were going to win, I probably had some hot tweets ready to go. Like, uh, you know, you think about it. I mean, it, it wasn't a dynasty, right, until they win this one. I think they had to get this fourth one. Because if not, they would have won three in, what, eight years, which is okay, but it's not like, yeah, you can still knock it. I think this solidifies something. I think we always look – we're in a space now, within the, you know, in this hot take space where we always look to knock people instead of celebrate them. So I would say if you're going to knock them, you know, that first one, you know, I Kyrie and Kevin Love didn't play. That second one, it was over. And I honestly thought they were done when they lost LeBron – when when it lost to LeBron, right? When he comes back three, one, cause you don't, you don't recover from that. Right. Yeah. It's like Ronda Rousey getting beat by, um, whatever, Holly, whatever. Um, yeah. You don't recover from that. When, the, when you get, when you're the bully and you get hit Tyson Douglas, <laughs> you don't recover. Yeah. And I, and the Warriors are done. And then two weeks later, it's like, Oh, we got KD. And all of a sudden that's how you recover. Right. And it changes things. But this one, I think it puts them up. I, you know, I'm, I'm old school. I still would say, like, you know, you know, the 1987 Hawks team, but <laughs> outside that, <laughs> you know, those those Bulls teams were really good. The Lakers teams are I'm I'm giving you nothing. The Bulls, the Pistons, the Lakers. I think the Spurs run is a little bit more impressive. I mean, Duncan got himself five, right? Um yeah. and that heat run, I went the heat run slash the LeBron run was pretty nice too. Right where he gets like four and ten years, and and um, but I'll I'll say this: the difference maker is it's Clay, 
it's and no one says this, but those two years count. Those two years after Toronto count. And they were a lottery pick team. They have these young players I mean, that are really yeah. good because they yeah. were awful. And 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 so I mean, Steph well, doesn't well, play but five games. But when Dre's yeah, your yeah. A player, Draymond's your A player, you're a lottery pick, right? And yeah. the next oh, year yeah. they, they get bounced. They get bounced. They got a healthy Dre and a healthy staff, and they don't make the playoffs. So, so let's can, can we just say this? I will no. say that Clay is a very valuable piece. I say that you know st- that one season after Toronto, I mean Clay's gone, Katie's gone. So that first season, Steph, that Dre's Steph, there, but they're Steph, done. Steph, 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 Steph plays five games, right? Like he right. But hand. can I say this real quick? I or wanted that games. season so bad because I knew everybody was going to be gunning after them. Oh, you don't have KD. You don't have Clay. Now you're on your own. We're gunning after you. And they picked up like D'Angelo Russell and, and some other player. And they were awful, right? Because yeah. people were gunning after them. And and well, and yeah. those two years count. It's just like in between the Bulls run. I think those two years count. And well, I the think first they year without Mike, they make it. Don't they go to the conference finals? Like, are am I? Do I have that correct or no? I they do. The, the first. Yeah, the first year, year without to, Mike, they, they go, go to the conference finals. finals. Yeah. Then the I year mean, after they don't. That's the year they, they get, get bounced, bounced by the, the second magic. round. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but then the second year, I thought Steph did. He was really, really good that year. All right, thirty-two a game, and yeah, lottery, he was, and a lottery and a lottery team. Yeah, they were the play. <laughs> they were the playing game. They lost to Memphis, right? This is game and that, lottery. They're lottery pick. Yeah, that's where Memphis was getting all that smoke. Um, right. But this year we they run were, up the chimney. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this year was good. I thought this was a good year. I thought Steph, you know, I, I think one of the things that's interesting the way we think about history is that the Warriors have changed the calculus of basketball. Yeah. Right? Like I I so so in this book uh on basketball that I have yet like have have researched on and off for like three years, uh one of the things that's very clear in looking at the 1960s, for instance, is that after Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar shows up, like even more so than even after Will Chamberlain, is that every team in the country is looking for the next great big man. It is a big man's league, but right. then they're looking for a seven-footer, right? This is how, Artis Gilmore, Jacksonville, right? right? Yeah, yeah, Artis Gilmore, Jim McDaniels at Western Kentucky. Then you know, the list goes on Bill and on. Yeah, yeah Bill, you know, all these dudes, 6'10 and above, right? Um, and so it's a center's league, right? And one of the things that Steph has done – and some of this is like, you know, and really an extension of Michael Jordan. There was a belief that you couldn't win a title without a big man, right? And right. what um, what the Bulls did with Michael Jordan as the lead guy, like they couldn't, there was no high scoring guard had won before, all yada, yada, yada. What Steph has done is he's also reconfigured the calculus, right? He's like, he's taken the high scoring guard and took it from, you know, 19 feet, which is where Jordan was really m- deadly. Because like right. he was, he was, he's taking jump shot. You know, when you watch the last dance, he's at his peak jump shot. And everybody's like got their hand in his chest, right? Because they can't even get, you know, they can't even challenge his jump shot, right? Um, and what Steph has done is like he's extended it out past the three point line, right? And so I saw this, um, the guy who does uh, what's his name, Kirk something, does the sprawl ball, looks at all the the where the shots are taken in the NBA and, and emphasizes this over the course of the league, um, and he. That now everything is at the rim or behind the three point line. That's right. really the Warriors have really changed the calculus, and that's really Steph because he's unbelievable, and Clay, their unbelievable right. shooting percentage. And so I think this is really a culmination of this is really the crowning achievement of them absolutely transforming the game of basketball um, in a way. And so I thought that was really appreciative. Is a tough. It was it was interesting. I don't yeah. know. I, I don't think that they, I think of those dudes as 30, um, 34, 30. 233 like i think it's going to be very difficult for the ready back but i thought the that it was really a culmination of that that style of play and is a solidification that the nba that we will see going forward will look like this more than it's it gonna be awful like, right because everybody because people can't because they're not them and that's and i'll say this boston's not them right so i'll say this real quick on the style of play it's like there's a really good piece in si that talks about the importance of grinnell 
Mm. Uh, so that's small. What is it? Are they NAI? I think they're a small D3 or NAI. Yeah. They're in Iowa. D3. Really, yeah, Iowa, yeah. Um, and they just pressed. They played 20 guys. They shot threes. And they were scoring like 160 play, no D. And then that system gets brought into the D League um, with the Sacramento Kings team. And they tried the same things. And what happens is the NBA got their hands on it, you know, fixed it a little bit. You start to see Houston Rockets do it. But it's it's those Warriors who make it possible. And what happens to these other teams, and you're right, it changes how teams think. Everybody's 3 and D. But the problem that these other teams have when they face a healthy Warriors team they're not them. You you don't have <laughs> Steph Curry shooting that ball. You don't have Klay Thompson shooting the ball. And that changes everything, right? You might have right. Andre and Andre Wiggins type, but you don't have Clay and Steph. And now because you don't they have Clay and Steph, Andre and and Andrew Wiggins, who's a number one lottery pick who's starting the all-star, he just gets to play one-on-one basketball. He's 6'9, 42 inch vertical leap. He just gets easy shots, and it changes everything. Whereas, like the Celtics, they don't get to play that way because you're kicking it to Marcus Smart, who, who my guess is a low thirty percent shooter. And even if he's higher than that, you still think he's a low thirty percent shooter. You just don't think it's gonna go in, I mean, and so you don't have to honor anything. And it's not it's not good basketball because people well, aren't think, getting good shots. I think the math is funny because I think that like I have to go back and reread read the statistics, but like it's something like. It's like at thirty-seven or thirty-eight percent, the three-point shot is is significantly better. Like an, an expected return, expected value. Right. This is like like expected value of that if you shoot it like 38 percent. The problem is most people don't shoot thirty-seven, thirty-eight percent. Right? Like this is the case. No, it's hard. And to so do. so Steph, but the, what makes Steph so crazy is he's like when he's on, he's like like there was that game four, he shot like fifty percent from three. Like fifty plus percent from three, like and right. he shoots. And it's not going footers. one of two, like Michael Cooper <laughs> no, no. or something like that. No, no. Like, like, no. He's like, yeah. he was like nine, nine of eighteen. No right? knock or on Michael six. Cooper, by the way. Yeah, right. No, the, you know what I mean. So you know he's shoot. He's a he's a career forty percent three point shooter. Clay's like a career thirty nine percent, and that's including the last two seasons. This season where he's been at his worst probably in, in his entire career, right? Since so this rookie year, so. Yeah, it's been interesting. I think Steph is a way of thinking about, you know, he created the way of his shooting created a new measure for efficiency. So, like, I was listening to some people talk about this, and I don't want to get into this Kobe thing, but one of the things about Kobe was that that Kobe was extremely inefficient, right? Like, he was an old school – like, his game did not fit in a in this modern analytics-driven game. Right. Like, G- Kobe was a will and volume guy, right? Like – if he got it going, you'd be like, oh, he's got it going. We still be a long night. Right. But he going to let you know he's got it going because he took 35, 40 shots, right? Like, um, and that's a really different game um, than what the Warriors. And so I think it's really this question of efficiency is really interesting. And I think that the Celtics, what got exposed in this finals is that they are a very talented team. And at times they can be efficient. But they are generally, on the whole, not very efficient because right. they have a but they don't have a lot of great shooters. And then, like you pointed out on Twitter, constantly they just could not figure out how to get a good shot, a two point shot, or get to the line to stem momentum. Right. So they they let they let games where that were teetering, you know, fifty fifty, go out of their control because they just refused to get to the line and and like get four points from the free throw line right. or get a good shot or whatever, whatever. Jason Tatum needs a mid range game. Like, but the problem is, is everything's 23 or it's one foot and, and, and his game. And it's like, let me dribble, you know, a hundred times before I even make my move. And, and that's, you know, guys are made in a lab. And when you're made in a lab, you're not, you're not, a lot of times you're not shot creating on your own. You know, you just, you know, back in the day, you just go to the park yourself and, and you'd work on, everyone had a shot, right? And yeah. You, you would create your own shot. You'd play. You know, play on your own. You you hit the pull ups and stuff like that. Maybe you can't go to the basket because you get knocked down. Um, so you have to have this this mid range game. But if you're born a lab, go get you go watch Instagram, watch every training video, and tell me how many times they're taking they're working a mid range. They're, they're taking a mid a one two dribble mid range pull up. Vinny Microwave Johnson, right? It's yeah. Let me pound 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 cross. Let me lower my leg right this. It's all this like sciencey talk and inverted and this like instead of just play 
Yeah. And the Celtics couldn't just play. They couldn't just, okay, we need a shot. Do you have a move, Jason? You don't have a move, Jason Tatum. It, as good as you are, you can't get a, a you, quality 15-footer. And that's you what know, you need, you know a quality elbow like, jumper. Yeah. You know what's funny is he made every shot difficult. And the person who he modeled his game after Kobe, right? But the person I thought right. that he needed to be in the finals that would have probably put them over the edge was Carmelo Anthony. You know, Carbello got that yeah. free throw line. Of like he gets to that right. right, that right free throw line, and you'd be like, "Yo, this is two points. We can just run up. Like we can literally run the other way sometimes, especially when he's getting to go. And you're like, it don't even matter. Yeah. It don't even matter what you do. Like you can double. He's gonna get his point right here because he really is so comfortable. Like you said, as a dude right. who came up and not in a lab, but really getting a spot on the floor where he's like, this is this is my spot. Um, yeah, you know, James Jason Tatum will post you up from 19 feet away. You know what I mean? Like right, like. <laughs> And it's um, not that I think he's good. I think he's he's checking. All right, we, are we ready to move on to Big Ten? No, no, or, yeah, yeah, no, no. I was last week. Uh, KD, where do you think he's going? KD, Kyrie. Oh man, this I love it. NBA offseason. We did this last year, and Russ, or two years ago, Russ is going somewhere every year. I I think underrated is Lakers. Everyone say they don't have an asset. They have the best asset ever. They have a forty-seven million dollar expiring contract at Russell Westbrook. I think that's that's got to be so enticing to a team like the Nets who can actually get people to come live in New York, right? That's different mm-hmm. than like a team like the Jazz who it doesn't matter if you have 47 cap. No yeah. one's coming there, right? But if you're a team who's like, okay, we need a star player, you get a rent a star for a year. Russell's going to give you 110%. You're not going to make the playoffs probably. You'll probably be a lottery pick, which is good. You're losing that pick anyway, so whatever. But now you have cap and you can build – rebuild quickly, figure out the lay of the land, figure out the free agencies. That's the other thing though. You got, I'm not a GM. You got to calculate that. But I think, I don't know. I think the signs is possibility they could trade Aiton for, for, um, for KD. So if you're the, if you're the Nets, you don't get KD in return, but I think a, an Aiton Mikel Bridges package makes you, it's a good building block. It's a really good building block. I think in a perfect world, KD would go to Milwaukee. That no one's talked about that, but KD mm-hmm. and, and Giannis give up Middleton and even Drew Holiday, and and I don't care who else you got. You you can go to the D League and 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 pick up a bunch of players, or you can pick me up for all you can. You got those two. I think that'd be awesome. And if I was like the Adam Silver, I would I'd force something like that. Like just you know who else right, a good spot for yeah. KD? I don't know about Kyrie because he's a, he don't show up to work on a regular basis. Yeah. But um, KD Denver, I heard this is a space, and I think Denver with Michael Porter Jr., um, Jamal Murray, um, some of the other pieces around no, uh, Jokovic, Jokovic, KD and Jokovic would be sick because Jokovic would throw a yeah. no look behind the back pass over his ear, yeah, <laughs> over his ear. Uh, yeah. Through the hoop, uh, off the scoreboard, right into Katie's hand for three. Yeah, or Katie would just ISO the whole time, and Yogas would do none of that. So, <laughs> so that, I think who knows? This Katie, I think it's interesting that we've talked about this like now three times in, I, I, almost in the space of this podcast. Maybe not in the complete yeah. space of this podcast, but you know, Katie's been the the piece that's been on the move. Um, yeah, that's that's the big news. We'll we'll follow back up when we get a when we get a final resting spot for KD and Kyrie right. uh, uh, this summer. All right, the last big news is now we're fifty three minutes. I'm going to take seven minutes. This is going to try to limit this to seven minutes. Uh, the okay. last piece of news that broke today uh, was that uh, USC and UCLA have officially joined the Big Ten uh, Athletic Conference uh, now in the Midwest, yeah, Midwest I, and, you know, I, and East Coast, yeah. Yeah, I have to say yeah, that as, yeah. a, as, as a person who uh, has a degree from Maryland, now Big Ten school, but then ACC school, and the Ohio State University, who happened to get the B uh, copyrighted, apparently. Uh, uh, yeah, welcome, 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 welcome to L.A. Yeah, welcome L.A. to the to the team in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Those cold games in Michigan in November. I, I, I cannot wait to see uh, UCLA show up at Wisconsin. In life, you're not watching that. No one's watching. No, late October. No, No, you know why? Because because I actually, it's like we. What has happened when glass gets cold, right? Like this is like Wisconsin is interesting. You know, that's a tough out. Everybody who lives in the Midwest knows that. Like there are certain teams you don't want to see. Iowa, Wisconsin, 
especially when it comes late in the season. Uh, those are tough places to play in the best conditions, and uh, it is brit- bitterly cold in Madison uh, after Labor Day. <laughs> well, I'll say this. Here's here's what we need to think about, and then we'll talk about the, the black athlete part about this. Is I think there's a two-part here. But just logistically, USC, Michigan tipping off at noon in Ann Arbor, that's a nightmare for USC because it's nine o'clock West Coast time and those dudes aren't up, right? Like you don't yeah. play nine o'clock football. Reverse side, a seven o'clock tip off in the Coliseum, that's 10 o'clock here, right? And so I let's suspect, just be real. I, those dudes aren't going back to school on Monday. <laughs> I, I suspect I think I sus- they're going back to school. I, I suspect yeah. that part of the reason that UCLA and USC um, are going to get they're going to get a little bit of favorable scheduling in the sense, at least in the first couple of years, is that they probably won't get many noon kickoffs. They'll get the three o'clock noon. Ki- yeah. Three o'clock our time game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They'll get the three, the three, the 3 p.m. kickoff game and the three thirty game. And, and they're going to be seen though for the first time. Well, I think, the that's, yeah. I think that's a big part of it, right? Like people have been talking about, I mean, the money, um, let's talk real quick about the money and then we'll talk about exposure and then we'll talk about black athlete. I think the money for those who are not aware of college sports like this, the big 10 is in the pre in the process of renegotiating his television contract uh, with uh, various television partners, uh, most notably Fox, which is a, is a 61, I think I heard this today, 61% owner of the, of the big 10 network. Um, and so they Fox is almost guaranteed to get the the lion's share of the major games. This means they're going to get the Ohio State Michigan game. The game of the week is going to be on Fox, and then the secondary tier games are going to be out. And so those are up. Whether it's ESPN, uh, Amazon, uh, there's a I, right before we got on, I read an article from a Maryland's uh, business sports guy who who's pretty famous uh, in the Maryland circles for breaking the news about us going to the Big Ten maybe a decade ago, eight years ago, whatever it was. Um, he said that Apple has now gotten asked to get back in to renegotiate the secondary rights to streaming service, right? So, like, wow. they're talking about this next contract being worth about, uh, on an annual basis, $100 million dollars to each team in the big team. Right. Right. This is before wow. they this is before they sell a ticket. <laughs> right? That's a big deal, right? That's it's it's so much money and it makes sense cuz it's it's Michigan and USC. Like I get yes. it, and the Ohio State. But let's be clear. Michigan is a worldwide no name. USC is a no name. UCLA is a no. It's pretty pretty big name. Ohio State. You have the biggest schools. Like I mean, I mean, I get Alabama's a winner, but I don't think they carry like USC carries weight weight. Um, and and you get the LA market. They have the think about this. They have the LA market. They have the New York market, which means it's. It's it's new. It's Philly. They have that market. They have you want me to whatever. Have, I'm gonna tell Chicago you Chicago market. It's they, crazy. It's crazy. They, they've got they've got. Uh, I think I saw this. Five of the top ten markets. They've got L, with this now. L A. New York, Washington D C, Chicago, Philly. Those are the five markets that they have. I think I maybe right. missed one. And those are the ones that that you know. That's the ones that matter, right? right. And then we talk about they, the black athlete part about that negotiated by. The the Big Ten brother, uh, the yeah. president, and who who you didn't get to see because you didn't go to Nash uh, in Chicago, <laughs> uh, but not. he was there and he gave I, he gave his story. I think it's it's just the story he tells. It's pretty good, pretty powerful speaker. Um, but he talked about when he signed the latest Big Ten contract. Right, he got in an accident. He got in an accident on the way there. He's like, "There's no way I'm gonna let this." I think he's like in an Uber or service. No way I'm gonna let this ruin me signing this billion dollar deal. Um, but the question is, I know we're running out of time. The other part about this black athlete, who does that money go to? And that oh, we talked about this yeah. earlier. At some point, you're gonna have to break I mean, these guys off. We're getting closer to paying the players. I actually think that this is this is actually strengthening the players' hand to negotiate. I think if we remember now, what's interesting is, and I think this has been unspoken about in any of the coverage, right? That 
the two strongest places for player empowerment, especially in terms of, of unionization and paying players, was the Northwestern coalition that was right. maybe five or six years ago. Kane Coulter, then, yeah. Yeah, and then the Pac-12. And then the Pac-12 coalition uh, in the summer of 2020, right? In, in mid-COVID, right. the Pac-12 was one of the strongest ones, right? So now we're running the risk of adding these two separate populations that were operating in their own kind of spaces into one athletic conference. There is a potential that they will have the ability to really push the ball. I expected to come out of this big, this new reconfigured Big Ten before I expected to come out of the SEC. Some of this is about regional politics. Some of this is about institutional right. politics. I think that the schools in, you know, just to be perfectly honest, I work at, I, in full disclosure, I worked in the SEC, right? That it's just, it's that one of the things that the Big Ten is very clear about that all the members of the Big Ten have to be a member of this elite organization that is the AAU, the, uh, what is it, the American Academic, the Academic American Union, whatever it is, and it's elite universities based on research dollars, uh, includes UCLA, USC, Kansas. Uh, Maryland, Ohio State, Michigan, all these Virginia, all these big, you know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, all these schools are involved. Uh, and so in order to be part of the Big Ten, you need to be a part of that academic consortium. Uh, and, you know, Oregon's a part of that. Washington's a part of it. USC, UCLA is a part of it. Stanford's a part of it. So when we talk about the next wave of expansion, you're expecting that. But what that also means is that those schools are also recruiting, I think, you know, I hate to use the term student athlete because I think you've talked about this in, in your work, but also on this pod, that there's a made up term that the, the NCAA created to, in order to avoid kind of workers comp. Right. But the but these these young men and women are some of the very best students at these institutions. They are not they're getting into these institutions, not just because they can play sports, but because they also have a kind of academic wherewithal. And of course, it's Cornell like, Jones. Right. I, I didn't come here to play school. There's a range. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. I do think the kids. At North, <laughs> I do think the kids at Northwestern and Michigan yeah. um, uh, use it. Yeah. USC, UCLA. Uh, those kids, Washington, Iowa, probably, yeah. Uh, yeah, like those kids are those are those are really sharp Wisconsin, kids. Yeah, yeah, really good are, schools, those, yeah, you know, the sharp kids, you know, who are really talented athletes, and um, and so that is a very different. They're they're you know they're just recruiting at a different kind of tier. Uh, Michigan's the number one, you know, one of the is the premier public institution in the country yeah. right now, and yeah. I think that like that that says a lot, and and so. I think that that's going to get the ball rolling in having those conversations among the student athletes and on those campuses right. and that can lead. And I actually think that this is one of the things that the Big Ten could actually do in terms of pressure in the SEC is coming up with a play. You know, Kevin Warren has to come up with a strategy to put pressure on the SEC because that's not going to be their inclination. The SEC is right. very paternalistic. You know, it is the deep south. These boys should be happy that they hear they, you know, right. we're gonna reward them with you know locker rooms and not classes. You know, like that's a that's some yeah. of that, that attitude. I'll, I'll say this before we get out of here: two two things on this. One, the money changes. To, so the NIL, I think, change states, right? You have to calculate. Can I actually say something? I'm not gonna mess up my bag, right? And and I think it's increases. I actually think increases the money they can make because you're bringing in a, a USC school and now it's, it's the biggest, it's the biggest conference, right? Like yeah. it's the, well, it's, I mean, SEC, they play football. They're really good, but I don't think it ranks the names, the way you say, and once, if you ever bring in Notre Dame, it's over. Right. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden you're getting more dollars because you're more visible. Those USC guys are, are visible. You have the top five markets. Right. Do you want to mess up that bag if you're an individual? And I think the coaches are always going to be in their ears. So that's why it's going to be hard. The only way it's going to work if they collectively do these players, like like we saw, like you said, the Pac-12, it's got to be together. The hardest part is with the transfer portal and everybody moving. In the NIL, yeah. It makes it hard. NIL makes it hard. But Pac-12 Hattie and then the big and came and trying to mess it up, like let us yeah. play. <laughs> right? Like, why didn't yeah. we? We had something. We have money. And yes. like, no, I gotta, I gotta give. I gotta play this season. It's like, no, you guys had money. <laughs> like, yeah. you had yeah. it. It, it. You don't play for free. You play for the money. And they're like, we're gonna play for the love of the game, and that just ruined <laughs> it. So, so you know, 
there's more people, there's more chefs in the, in the, you know, in the kitchen. So it's really hard to get people together, but you're right. Like once you start seeing your school make a hundred million, you're going to start questioning. Well, I mean, things, like, right? like wow. so like at, at university of Florida, for instance, there was an article in SI, uh, in sports illustrated, uh, about how Billy Napier, their new coach, he must have like 50 analysts on, on his staff, wow. right? Like, you know, and so part of it is, you know, you can only have, well, I think it's like 10 coaches on the field, but what these, these elite programs are using this extra money for, this is all Alabama started this, right? They're having all these quote unquote analysts. So they're breaking down field and they're watching practice film and they're not technically coaching players on the thing, but they're basically helping do the prep work. Right. Well, if you got a former head coach who's breaking down film of next week's opponent, well, then that's like different than having your GA break down, like a dude who just right. got out of, who just finished playing <laughs> break down field, right? Like that's, and so that's where a lot of these teams are now spending money, not just in terms of facilities, but they're spending on coaches and they're looking around. If you're a player, you're like, yo, why am I not getting any money? And they got like 75 coaches in here, right? Like this is, right. this is crazy, right? Um, and so I think there's going to be, you know, the question is, can the consciousness of these student athletes at 17 to 22, like, can they, can they turn that corner and then can they organize and can, then can they present a challenge in a, in a way that generates results? I mean, those are, those are a lot of big ifs and I don't know if they can do it, but I think that, that if it happens, I suspect that it'll happen out of the big 10 before it happens out of the SEC. Yeah. And on that note, I think we, we've we gone really long, but it's been two months. It's been two months. So so we had to get get a lot out there and there's a lot that happened this week. So on that note, peace. Peace.